Our scripture lesson this morning is also a psalm. It is Psalm 36. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. An oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He devises wickedness on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not abhor evil. Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come against me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It is a interesting, well-known fact, I suppose, that even in the year 2023, when the population of the United States is surveyed, a supermajority will still say that they believe in the existence of a God who is very much like the presentation of God that Christians make. They will say, I believe that there is a God who created the world I believe that he is good, that sort of thing. The grand majority of, of Americans will say they believe that. They don't, however, by any stretch of imagination as a majority, say that they believe in a devil, which is very, very strange in some ways because the objective evidence for the existence of evil in the world is just kind of overwhelming. Martin Luther made the comment that it doesn't take faith to believe that God exists, and he is correct. Uh, just simple logic and philosophy will point out that a universe of causation like we live in, where something comes from something, comes from something, comes from something, requires a first something that is not created. All through history, all the great civilizations of the world have said there is a first cause you know it doesn't take faith what it takes faith to believe is that god is good because the world is so filled with wickedness vice and sin that one could easily end up in the condition of people that you read about in psalm 4 where david says 
there are many saying, who can show me any good? Evil permeates the world. Our forefathers in the Christian faith, the reformers, uh, had no such illusions as our current generation. In this psalm in the Geneva Bible, uh, there's an interesting note that is on verse 5. Though wickedness seemeth to overflow all the world, yet by thine heavenly providence thou governest heaven and earth. Spoiler alert, that is the major theme of the psalm as they present it, and they're not wrong. It's a contrast between the wicked, who are very visible in the world, and as the reformers say, they seem to run it. They seem to have overflowed the world in every direction, and the God who actually runs the world. It's, it's a contrast. Um, nothing really has changed from the time of the reformers. If one has eyes to see and looks about, one can see the wicked pretty much everywhere and pretty much running pretty much everything. I wish that things had changed, but they haven't. You're taught as a child, crime does not pay, but you're taught that motto by people who are profiting from crime usually. And the issue is they simply don't want competition. It is a wicked filled world. And King David, the servant of the Lord and in the hand of the Holy Spirit, wants you to know that. And in fact, looking at this psalm and you know, considering this is New Year's Eve, we're going into a, a new year, uh, what would King David have us to really realize from this psalm, given that we're viewing that another year is going to come? Well, a number of things. The first one is David begins by simply assuring us that the wicked exist. It is human nature to not want to see evil in the world. That's why the American populace says, well, we don't believe in a devil. They want to be positive in their outlook. But the truth is, wickedness does exist. And the wicked are not just your typical sinners. The truth is, the Bible teaches that all of Adam's children have fallen in sin. In fact, you're born that way. You're born with a propensity to sin. Um, but the average sinner, though he is a rebel against God and any form of sin will get you damned on the judgment day, the average sinner is your kind of nice neighbor, the guy who you like talking to when you take out the trash and you might borrow his lawnmower or he might borrow yours, the guy that you see at the uh, you know, neighborhood barbecue, the wicked aren't those people. The wicked have evolved, or as the psalm puts it, they have ceased to do good at all. They have come to the point where they don't abhor evil at all. The average sinner has not yet decayed to that level. Now, 
Make no mistake, if you are outside of Jesus Christ, you are decaying. You are in the process of becoming more and more wicked every day. And there is a there is a genetic or organic connection between being a sinner and becoming wicked. But the wicked have decayed to the point where the average person does abhor evil to a certain degree. The average person doesn't get up in the morning and say, you know, I, I don't care if I'm evil, uh, I, I don't hate evil. That's not your, your typical neighbor. But the wicked have ceased to put off any sort of good. They have become predators. Um, wickedness and vice and sin is a matter of joviality to them. They have become true dangers in the world, and they do exist. Um, the reason why they have devolved to this way is because sin is speaking to them internally. It has truly, truly become their master. In the New King James, the psalmist is said to say, there is an oracle in my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That is a way to translate it. That's a legitimate sentiment from the psalm. David is looking at wicked people and thinking to himself, you really only get to live about 70 years, maybe 80, by reason of strength. But that's really not that long. And you are in God's world that he made. He designed it all. And he keeps it running. And you are choosing to be wicked. You are choosing to walk in sin and even more so than your neighbors. How arrogant is that? How utterly blind is that? How can you be that way? Well, David says, you know, in my heart, I, I wondered about that. And then th there, there was just kind of a realization that God gave me, an oracle. There's no fear of God before these people's eyes. And there's not. There, there, there couldn't be. How quickly a 70 to 80 year life goes. You would think anyone sane, anyone with any sort of rationality, would say to themselves, I'm going to face God and really quickly. If I live out my life, which leaves out, I tip my four-wheeler and die in the parking lot, which also happens. What kind of arrogance is mortal man to be wicked before the face of God? To realize you are going to stand before him, you have no choice about that. God is going to judge your life. God is going to assign you to a fiery eternal hell. What kind of insane arrogance lives as wicked in the world? Well, it's one that has no fear of God before their eyes. They, they're not afraid of that. That's irrational, but they're not. Now, it can also be translated, this verse, the way that it is translated in the Amplified, Transgression, like an oracle, speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear or dread of God before his eyes. So uh, 
this translation emphasizes that sin itself has taken hold of the inner man. Sin has become truly the master. It speaks in the wicked's head, and he is like an addict to sin. It is driving him. The people who translated the Geneva Bible, again, the reformers, recognized that the sense of the Hebrew had both connotations, and they very uh, um, astutely translated it in a way that they got both in the same verse. The way they put it is, Wickedness saith to the wicked man, even in mine heart, that there is no fear of God before his eyes. So the reformers wanted to, to let you know both truths are there. David sees the wicked man and says, look, you know, the only way you can be like this is if you have no fear of God. And why do they have no fear of God? It's because sin itself is whispering in their ear. Sin is talking to them telling them certain things. It's got a hold of them internally. They may think they are masters of their own fate, but they're not. They may think that they don't serve the God of heaven, so they're free, but they absolutely are not. They are enslaved to sin. It is whispering in their heart, and it is what takes away the fear of God from them. Beloved if you lose your sense of pain in this world, you are in a desperate spot. If you can't feel pain, you're going to get hurt and you don't know it. And that happens. There are people without the sense of pain. Uh, their arm gets ripped off. They don't realize it. They bleed to death because it'll hurt. Well, this is kind of the spiritual case. If you lose your fear of God you're going to truly, truly be hurt badly. And you don't recognize it because you've lost your fear of God. And that's where the wicked are, says David. I've come to realize that's who they have to be. They are enslaved to their sin. And what is sin whispering in their ear? Well, again, David has uh, given certain phrases that are packed with, with meaning and bringing it out into the English, you kind of have to look at a couple different biblical translations to see everything that David is saying. Uh, what is being whispered in their ear is that, well, they're not really wicked. The way one translation puts it is, he sees himself with too flattering an eye to detect his sin and guilt. It's been said a number of times across this pulpit, but C.S. Lewis has a quote about uh, people who feel they are far from God and people who are close to God. He says, you know, if you encounter someone who you would say is truly walking with the Lord, they are likely to tell you, oh, my friend, I am a sinner. I am absolutely dependent upon the grace of God. I see my sin and misery, and it drives me to Christ. But if you are with somebody who is far from the Lord, they are likely to look you in the eye and say, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I'm as good as the next guy, and they're right, because the next guy's a sinner, or he might be wicked. Uh, there's nothing wrong with me. 
that's sin whispering in the ear. That's that's sin telling you you're, you're not really wicked. Or if you are wicked, it's not that bad. The way another translation puts it is, for he flattereth himself in his own eyes that iniquity shall not be found. Uh, uh, that iniquity shall not be found out and be hated. So in this translation, which again is accurate to the Hebrew, the wicked says, "Well, I'm not really wicked, but if I am wicked, well." Uh, my sin is not really going to be hated. Uh, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I mean, this is kind of a good old boy world, and we all know boys will be boys, and I'm one of them. Uh, people aren't going to hate my sin. God isn't really going to hate my sin. I mean, God's the creator, and he must have created this good old boy world too. So like Islam's God, he'll overlook small sins, right? And my sins are small. Uh, or perhaps it is a matter that uh, the people around him will not hold him in contempt for his wickedness. The truth is we do hold the wicked in contempt because they're predators. People who are truly wicked, they have followed that final decay to that point. Those around them generally don't like them in any way because of what they are. But again, using this, this translation, they don't think that they're going to be seen that way. And then uh, sin whispers beyond this, well, you are good at what you do at your wickedness. You're not going to get caught. Or as another translation puts it, for he flatters himself continually that his sin cannot be exposed and denounced. So sin has gotten a hold of the wicked and convinced him to see himself very highly and to see everybody else as being like him. And if they're not, he's going to get away with it. That's what sin whispers in the ear. And David comes to the conclusion that's the way it has to be. They have to be seeing the world totally falsely for them to be who they are. And the wicked do do wicked things. The world is filled with wickedness, as the note in the Geneva Bible pointed out. And uh, you can't believe a word that the wicked say. In verse 3, we are told, the words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. So in three verses, David pictures the internal estate of the wicked, the fact that they are, in fact, doing wicked things, and does a very good job of painting them in three dimensions. But having done that, there are nine more verses of the psalm, and King David would have you not be ignorant of the wicked, but he would have you see wickedness in the world and turn to God. Did you notice in the psalm the transition there between 3 and 4? In verse 1 through 3, David is describing the wicked, and we're not completely sure who he's talking to exactly. He could be talking just to those who are hearing the psalm. But in verse 4, David turns to heaven, and he begins to speak directly to God. 
your loving kindness, your mercy is in the heavens. Your faithfulness is amazing. So what's happened is the psalmist has been confronted by what wickedness really is, and it has driven him to seek God, which is exactly what wickedness ought to do. When you realize what wickedness is, and especially if you happen to see it growing in yourself, if you happen to recognize its icy fingers beginning to enslave you more and more, it should cause you to turn to God in prayer. And that's exactly what the psalmist does. He turns and he looks at God as opposed to what he's seen in the wicked. And what he sees of God is that God is faithful. The wicked are not. You can't believe a word they say. Every word's deceitful. Uh, internally, they think that they're good people. But David focuses on God in verse 4, and he says, your, your mercy, or it could be translated loving kindness, as it is to other places in the psalm, your hased, your faithfulness to your covenant, is really beyond describing. God is faithful. He is merciful to his people. His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Though every sinner is included when scripture says, let God be true, though every man a liar. The first part of that verse is, let God be true. God is always dependable. God is always faithful. God cares for his children. God is the exact opposite of the wicked. He is morally active in the world. After, in verse 4, telling us God's character, in verse 5, he says, Verse 6, your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep. O Lord, you preserve man and beast. It takes faith to believe that God is good. But the truth is, God is good. It takes faith to believe that God is acting in the world when so much wickedness is happening everywhere in every arena. But nevertheless, God is. As the reformer said, even though we see wickedness overflowing the world in every direction, yet you, Lord, are active running heaven and earth, and you are good, you are faithful, you are just. The psalmist is enraptured by the fact that's true. If there were no God, consider what living in the world would be like. I spent 10 years as a chaplain for prisons of various types. And we would have conferences that would come in, Christian conferences, and you would have people from outside come in and fellowship with believers who were in the jail. And during those conferences, a number of the people who would come in to them would kind of get mad because they would say, you know, I look around this jail and the, the prisoners have a gym, they have a basketball court, they're fed three meals a day, they're not paying any money, you know, somebody is bringing heat in here, these people are living better than me. And there is some truth to that, but I would have to remind them there is a hell that these prisoners are encountering, 
that you do not encounter, they are locked up in here with each other. And let me assure you, that makes hell in the prison. Well, at a macro level, we live in a world of sinners and the wicked, and it plays out a little bit more subtly in the world, but that is what the world would be like if there were no God. We would all be locked in here with each other for the brief amount of time we live. We would be subject to the sinful impulse of others. They would be subject to our own sinful impulse. This world would not really need the existence of a hell because it would become it. But David says that is not the way the world is because God is at work. He is actively pursuing a course of action. He is pursuing a course of action that will result in preserving man and beast. The psalmist shows us God's heart. He has made man and beast. God loves his creation. He wants to preserve it. The wicked will prey upon it and consume it for his own ends, but God desires to preserve it. God is unable to do anything else because of his nature. His faithfulness, his covenantal faithfulness, is said to be, quote, excellent in verse 7a. How precious is your loving kindness, O God, when shown against the base relief of man in his full decay, the goodness of God is seen for what it is. It is truly excellent. And those who see that, who are given to see that, the rational, logical thing to do is to flee from wickedness, to flee into the arms of God. And that's what the psalmist says is happening for those who see. Therefore, the children of men put their trust, their faith. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. And when they do that, they are rewarded. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. That is a fascinating way of putting things. Sin appeals to the desire for pleasure at some level or another. And sin gives pleasure for a season, but not a real true pleasure. But those who find the shelter under the wings of Almighty God are brought into his house and they are given all the sustenance they need and in his presence, they receive, quote, from the river of his pleasures. If you are a converted Christian, do you remember what pleased you before you were in Christ? Do those sorts of things please you now? Or do you find them to be distasteful? And do you find that there are pleasures that the unconverted cannot even comprehend. That life is actually pretty pleasurable if you are in God's house, because God himself gives the pleasure. That is a reality truly an only converted person can really know, but it's very true. 
David pictures men fleeing from a wicked world into God's house and receiving everything they need there because God is good. Uh, this is the picture of God's bringing people into salvation. It is a salvation that people need. And uh, why is it that all this goodness can be given to them? Well, it's because according to David's final summary statement, um, the, the well of life is God himself. If you feel that you are dry and desolate internally, if you feel that you are spiritually dead inside, well, God is the fountain of life. And if you don't have the fountain, you're dried up, you're decayed, you're, you're without. But under the shadow of God's wings, the fountain of life pours over you. You are refreshed in life. And not only that, you have the foundation to actually know something. David's son, Solomon, will very famously say, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. He will also say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Every sort of cognitive element in human life begins with the fear of the Lord. You really can't think straight if you don't fear the Lord. You're drain damaged. You just aren't shooting on every cylinder. But the psalmist, David, says, in the light of the Lord, there we see light. In God's house, gathered to God, we are able to actually think and perceive and to know. Uh, the converted person has his mind opened in a way that he really can't describe to the unconverted person because now the world makes more sense because God is the origin of the world and he is the giver of life. And so here's your contrast. You've got the wicked and you've got God and it is light and darkness, just absolute. There is no gray in the psalm. There is no mid-ground. And there isn't. Having seen the contrast, the psalmist now makes his petitions. The prayer really only has two. The first one is, Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. You know, God is of such a nature, he's going to do that. But it pleases God that we petition him for it because quite frankly, we are totally dependent on God's goodness every single moment of the day. Should God not answer this petition of the psalmist, life would come crashing down. And the psalmist recognizes that. He recognizes his need for the Lord. He says, Lord, please continue your faithfulness, which I said reaches in the heavens, to your people, which I know you're going to do, but still I beg you to do it because I need it. And then he makes the petition a little bit more tangible in the second petition. He says, let not the foot of pride come against me and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. The wicked are there. As you go into 2024, uh, don't think that this is actually the day of new beginnings. It's not. 
the wicked have overflown the world, as the reformers put it, and it's going to be the same tomorrow. The wicked will drive you away and crush you if God is not on your side. And so the psalmist petitions the Lord, don't let that happen. The psalmists all over the place say the wicked have all the toys, they have all the money, they have all the power. Um, if there was no God to defend his chosen people, there would be no chosen people. So the psalmist prays, Lord, don't let these wicked that I've described come and crush me. And then he gives a picturesque statement of what will happen if his petitions are answered. There the workers of iniquity have fallen. They have been cast down and are not able to rise. Sin in their heart said, I'm not going to get caught. I'm not going to answer for this. But the psalm ends with, there they are cast down. They're not able to rise. Where is there? Well, there is God answering the psalmist's petition. God will intervene. They told themselves he never will, but he does. And they come to a terrible end. Because God has heard the petitions of his people. As you know, when Christ had risen from the dead and he approached his uh, disciples, one of the things that the Gospel of Luke tells us he did is he opened their minds and showed them from all the scriptures, especially the Psalms, which are mentioned by name, everything about himself. He declares the entire Hebrew Bible is about him, and it is. And so in this psalm, we should be able to see our Lord Christ, and we do. Who is our Lord Christ? Well, he is the manifestation of God's faithfulness said, of God's faithful keeping of his covenant. In the very Garden of Eden, when man had fallen and sin had entered the world, the first thing that God did was promise there would be the seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. He would have his heel bruised, but the serpent would have his head crushed. The very essence of God's covenant has always been Jesus. He was promised to come, and we see him come. God is active in the world morally, his judgments, his righteousness, or in all the world, says the psalmist. Well, that's true. What is the locus and the focus of everything God is doing in history? It's Jesus of Nazareth. At creation was made so that God the Father and God the Son would have a backdrop for the covenant between Father and Son. Creation literally exists for Jesus Christ. Jesus enters the world. He is the faithfulness of the Father. He is the activity of the Father. We are working our way through 2 Peter. And at the beginning of 2 Peter, in chapter 1, we were told, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to to life and godliness through the knowledge of him 
who called us by glory and virtue. Now think about that for a second. The psalmist saw wickedness in the world. It made him turn to God. Peter says Jesus walked in the world and his glory and his virtue were so clear to everyone who saw him, they saw the contrast. Christ is the activity of the Father drawing men to himself. The psalmist declares that's what God's doing. He is preserving men and beasts. He is bringing the sons of Adam under his wings. Well, how does he do that? He does it through the promised Christ. There is no other way into the safety of the Father than through the Son. And in the Son, we find that he is light and that he is life. Everything the psalmist says that God is, the New Testament says that Jesus Christ is. It is in Christ we see this psalm answered. The psalmist prays, don't let the wicked succeed and crush me. Don't let the wicked succeed and crush the world. Well, why is it the wicked are frustrated and they have not crushed the world and destroyed God's people? It is because the New Testament tells us Christ says all authority in heaven and in earth is given unto me. The psalmist cries out, Lord, preserve me. God says, behold, Jesus Christ. The psalmist says, bring me into your presence. Jesus Christ is what we are incorporated into. The very ministry of Christ in his prophethood, his priesthood, his kingship, all of it answers David's petition. He is our preserving. He is our hope. He is the only way into the sustenance of the Father. He is the only way into the river of God's delights. And he is ultimately responsible for the last verse of our psalm. Behold, there they are fallen. They cannot rise. When, when is that finally and fully going to be true? Well, it's the end of history and it's judgment day. Who will be judging? Who will sit upon the throne and judge all men according to who they are? Well, it will be Jesus Christ given to us. Our Lord Christ, who has redeemed us, will judge the world, and he will judge us. There's no verse in Scripture that says Christians will be judged. It says they will be condemned. But he will see us in himself. He will declare us to be innocent because we are in him. But the wicked will fall, never to rise again, because Jesus of Nazareth is sitting on the throne. So when you sing this psalm, as you're going to do, realize when you petition God to deliver you, to bring you to himself, to care for you, to remain, because remember, after Judgment Day, creation remains, it's perfectly purified, realize you are praying for Jesus Christ, because that is the answer to our psalm.